These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Thanks be to God. Oh, the word of the Lord. As a church, we've been making our way through Hebrews 11, which is the famous hall of faith of those Old Testament characters who the author of Hebrews holds out to us as examples. We've said at the beginning that you really have to keep two things in mind as we go through the, this, particularly this chapter, of, this chapter of the book of Hebrews because it points up one of the very real dangers of just landing in the middle of a book and not considering the book as a whole. Because everything up, leading up to chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews has been about Jesus. Everything has been, this is why Jesus is so much better. And then you start to get into chapter 11, and you read about these characters that are held out as examples of faith, and you think, and they are. They're, they're intended to inspire you. You're, you are expected to aspire to be like them. That's the, the intent of the chapter. But if you're only to read chapter 11 and not take it in consideration with the rest of the book, then you end up being essentially a moralist. I have to work really hard to be a faithful person, and you forget Jesus as being part of that equation. That's something that we have to keep in mind with the rest of it. The author takes an interesting break in our passage this week. He's been talking about Abraham, and now he doesn't talk today in the passage, the part we're considering, about a person at all. But, uh, well, at least a person in particular at all. He takes a step back and wants to make some important comments about the nature of the faith that he's holding out as an example. And then he'll continue with the story of Abraham, as we'll see next week. And, and what he's pointing out about these people in particular is, apparently, their willingness to consider themselves strangers and exiles, and their ongoing effort to seek a better country. This isn't their home, and they know it. They're looking for a better home. Recently, 60 Minutes aired a piece on the refugees which in mass are trying to cross the Mediterranean. They're pouring out of Africa through Libya, which has no law and order after uh, the fall of the former regime, jumping on fishing boats and trying to make it to a European country. They're also pouring out of Syria, going through Turkey, and in both cases, people are selling everything that they possess to pay smugglers to try to get them to a European country. If you ask any European country on the Mediterranean coast what their number one domestic issue is, they will all say without reservation immigration. How do you handle uh, thousands of people trying to get into your country? And what further exasperates the problem is that many of the refugees simply are piled onto a fishing boat, essentially pushed in the direction, usually of Italy, because it extends the farthest south, and are left. And as soon as they hit international waters, one person has a, uh, a satellite phone, and they call up Italy and say, please come help us. And so they're interviewing the Italian Coast Guard and saying, you know, how can you possibly handle this? And they're saying, we can't. You know, we may get calls from 25 boats on a given day. 
we don't possibly have the capacity to rescue the people who are on 25 different boats. And you saw just a few weeks ago, perhaps, if you're following the news, that a larger vessel sank with 800 refugees on it, most of whom died drowning in the Mediterranean. It's a, it's a human rights issue of, of epic proportions. And so I was fascinated particularly about these people who are running from their home, who, who are willing. I don't particularly like being out on the ocean. One of my great fears is drowning. And so the idea of being on this little boat, and they show some of the boats, and there are so many people that when the people start to move, the boat is immediately in danger of capsizing, of tipping over. And so they interviewed these person. There was one guy from Eritrea, and they said, are you not scared trying to cross a major sea in a tiny little fishing boat? And he said, yes, of, of course I'm scared. He said, but if I, if I do this, maybe I die. He said, if I don't and I stay in Eritrea, I die. Right? There's no question that he, in his mind he has a better option at trying his chances on the open sea rather than staying in his country. They asked the Italian Coast Guard, are you guys, are you guys frustrated with the refugees? And the Italian Coast Guard says, no, no, we know where they're coming from. We know their conditions and situation and say they are simply seeking a better country and who can blame them? Right? They've, in their minds, from what they're coming from, they've got nothing to lose. It has something to teach us about what it means to seek a better country. In fact, in relation to our passage today, it points up two important qualities in terms of being a stranger in exile. Number one is that you have to recognize that your country is not your home. Your country is not what you may make it out to be. That's particularly difficult for those who are born and raised in a, an affluent country. But you also have to believe that the country that you seek is better. To believe that your country is not your home and you have to believe that the country you're seeking is better than the country in which you exist. Let's start to unpack that a little bit. Particularly in light of our passage. The passage begins by simply referring in verse 13 to these, all died in faith. Who are the these? You might think that the author is referencing everyone who's come before, but indeed the author is not. He's referencing specifically those who are given a promise, called out of their homeland, and chose not to return to their homeland. So very specifically, he's still talking about Abraham and his kin. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, who all died in their faith, not having realized what was promised to them, but still remained faithful to the promises that had been laid down. Now, if you think about this notion a little bit, remember, what are God's promises to Abraham? I'm going to make your descendants great. They're going to be as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. Through your descendants, you're going to be a blessing to all nations, and I'm going to give you a lot of land. All of those promises, how many are realized in Abraham's lifetime? None of them, really. He has a son, but he doesn't see this mass of descendants. He doesn't understand or see how they're a blessing. And he doesn't possess the promised land. It's going to come hundreds of years later. So you have an individual who's made promises by God and acts on faith on those promises, but those promises aren't going to be realized until after he's dead. He's he's committed to a story that he realizes won't actually reach fulfillment or be realized until after he's gone. Now, if you take a step back for a moment from that kind of scenario, that is a pretty crazy proposition. right? Imagine just for a moment that somebody came up to you and said, 
Yeah, I'm a prophet, and I'd like you to move to New Mexico, to Santa Fe, and start a new life there. And if you do, I'm going to make your descendants fabulously wealthy and give you many descendants, and your family will be uh, remembered forever in American history. Now, it's all going to happen after you die, but that's the deal. Move to Santa Fe, restart, and we'll see how things go. Well, you won't see how things go. You will presume that they go that way after you die. Right? That's a pretty hard sale. sell. Right? Do, you, do you even care? I mean, are you going to move? Do you care about the promises if you don't get to experience them in your lifetime? Do you care at all if the promises are realized because you'll be gone? Do the promises actually motivate you at all? I think, in part, we have to recognize and we have to admit that no, they don't. I mean, not only do they not in that scenario, but also God's promises right now to us don't necessarily motivate us in the way that God, Abraham was motivated by God's promises. Kendra Creasy Dean is a uh, professor at, at, at uh, Princeton Seminary. And she was one of the few researchers who was included on the National Study of Youth and Religion which was the, the most enormous study of American youth and religion to date in our country. It was a massive study. And uh, the general conclusion was we've come to a place in American history where youth are fine with religion. They're not opposed to it. They don't really, you know, they're not going to make an argument for atheism or for agnosticism. But they don't really care. And their faith is not going to survive their graduating high school. That's the general picture of religion amongst youth in America. What's interesting about Dean is she wrote a book called Almost Christian, which is intended to describe the state of affairs where people may claim to be Christian, but in reality they are almost Christian, not quite there. But her contribution is interesting because people have long observed this phenomenon, and you know it, you have friends or perhaps children or siblings who have walked away from the faith or who don't take their faith that seriously. Right? You have some anecdotal awareness of what is going on. And many uh, hypotheses have been offered as to why this is happening. Some people talk about, well, it's, it's the breakdown of the family, or it's the postponement of marriage, or it's uh, the, the church going uh, mainline, liberal. People have piloted all kinds of potential answers. Dean has a pretty interesting observation, and this is her argument. She writes, Since the religious and spiritual choices of American teenagers echo with astonishing clarity the religious and spiritual choices of the adults who love them, lackadaisical faith is not young people's issue, but ours. The National Study of Youth and Religion reveals a theological fault line running underneath American churches, an adherence to a do-good, feel-good spirituality that has little to do with the triune God of Christian tradition and even less to do with loving Jesus Christ enough to follow Him into the world. It is hard to read the data from the NSYR without the impression that many American congregations, not to mention teenagers themselves, are almost Christian, but perhaps not fully, at least not in terms of theology or practice. What's Dean saying? Dean's, Dean's sticking her finger in her eye. 
saying, yeah, youth are walking away unprecedented numbers from the Christian faith, and the reason is that their parents have essentially walked away from the faith. In other words, our youth have stopped believing in the promises of God because their parents have stopped believing in the promises of God. And communicate that in small, subtle ways and in big ways. What does stopping to believe in God's promises look like? Right? How do you examine your own heart and start to try to decide, well, am I, really, am I just giving lip service to believing in God's promises and following through on them? Or am I actually orienting my life according to God's promises? Those are two very different things. We might look at the decisions that we make. You know, echoing to a certain degree the children's lesson, the promises that we believe in, the promises that we look forward to, shape the priorities and the way we organize our lives now. And so if we look at our priorities and the way we organize our lives, it reveals to us the promises that we actually believe in. So if we were talking about big decisions, you know, and I'm not talking about what toothpaste you used or whether or not to stop at Target on the way home, right? what are the bigger decisions that you make in life? What job should I take? Where do I move? How should I train my kids? And if you listen to people talk about these decisions, what job do I take? Well, what pays the most and has the best benefits and affords my family the best opportunities? Where do I move? What has the, uh, the best, the, what offers the most in a given location? Right? Why do people move to Rockwall? Why did you move to Rockwall or the surrounding area? Ask someone in the community, and I'll bet a lot of money that you'll hear one of three things. A bigger house and a bigger yard. The ISD, the school district, or lower cost of living. Right? Over and over again, those reasons are put out for why someone moved to the area. How should I train my kids is another big decision that we have to make. What informs that? What are you talking about as a household when you think about training your kids? Is it my kid is athletically gifted, he's nine, I want him to play varsity, and I aspire to a college scholarship, so I'm going to shape that and make that happen now? Or is your language of training kids and preparing them for the future different? We begin to see that There are many countries and many promises that surround us. We can fix our eyes in any number of locations, and the question before us this morning, by virtue of this passage, is what country really are you seeking? What promises truly are you believing in? I wish that I heard more conversations that went something that went in a certain way that actually revealed that people were really orienting toward the heavenly country and believing in God's promises. Conversations perhaps like, you know, I'm very intent that in 10 years I'll be able to give away 25% of my income. Or, I am so committed to wanting my children to be people of prayer as they enter adulthood that my number one priority for the next year is to become more better at praying and to model that for my kids. Or, you know, as I think about all the things my kids could do, I wouldn't take greater joy in anything than them becoming missionaries because there is nothing more beautiful than the feet of those who bring good news. And I'm already a little bit sad because that will probably mean that I will see my grandchildren less. So I'm saving. Saving for plane tickets in case they want to go 
into the mission field and I can go and visit my grandkids. Do you hear those kinds of conversations? I don't so much. I don't hear people orienting their lives and structuring their priorities over the heavenly country or God's promises. I think we spend far more time deciding what we want to promise ourselves and thinking about the country that we would like to make for ourselves. How does Abraham and his kin retain proper perspective in the midst of this challenge? Right? It is an age-old challenge. It is not unique to us, nor unique to Abraham. Look at verse 13. There's a funny phrase in that right after saying that Abraham and his kin will die in faith without having received any of the promises, it also says that they greeted them from afar. What does that mean? More literally, it says that they saluted them from afar. And this word is used in other uh, pieces of ancient literature and, and has the idea that um, particularly when someone's removed from their homeland by slavery or by soldiering, they, uh, it talks about their ability to salute their homeland. So if someone was taken in slavery never to return, you might say there was mourning because he could not salute his homeland. Or if a soldier was returning from home, to home, from being on the battlefield, as he crests the horizon, sees his homeland on the, on the edge of his vision, he, he salutes his homeland. He's coming home. See, the idea behind whether we say greeting something or saluting something is that it's in a certain proximity. You don't salute something that is far removed from you. You can't greet something that you have no access to. See, Abraham has actually received a portion of the promises that God has made. Right? God has met with him in person. God has made him rich. God has given him a son in his old age. Abraham is able to greet some of the promises in a small way that enables him to continue to move forward in faithfulness. And that is the same for us. God has also giving you a down payment on His promises so that you might greet them from afar and remain faithful in the midst of your sojourning. What promises are we talking about? Well, you have the down payment of the Holy Spirit that you will be caught up and unified perfectly with Christ. You have the promise of peace. Right? Not the peace that we'll know ultimately, but peace that now transcends understanding. You have the promise of life that is abundant, that offers you identity and purpose in a world that can offer you neither. And the more that you press toward the heavenly country, the more you experience aspects of these promises coming true in your life. But that, if you're thinking about it, may make us a little bit uncomfortable, right? So begin to think, well, I don't experience those things to a great deal. I don't really feel like I'm tasting God's promises. I feel like I'm putting in all the work to make myself believe in God's promises, and that's not carrying me forward very far. What do, I don't have very much energy left over even to look to a better country. And that's when we begin to wrestle with the, 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 both the brokenness but the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Right? How, how marvelously fooled we can be in the midst of, of thinking that we live according to God's promises. I have a, a friend in my accountability group. He's a pastor on the, the West Coast, and he was recently speaking 
uh, with, a, with a biblical counselor who's also a, a friend of his, and he's struggling. He's, he's struggling to feel and to experience God's love. He's tired of serving the people that he serves, and he, uh, he grew up in a home that wasn't very loving. He didn't experience that from his parents. And so he's talking to his friend, and, and he's lamenting that he doesn't experience the love of God and says, I love my kids better than God loves me. I tell them every day that I love them, which is not something that God says to me. It's not something that I heard growing up. Right? And his friend paused and thought about that for a moment. He says, yes, that, that could be love, but it could also be anger. My friend was taken aback. He didn't like that suggestion. He said, are you telling me that I, when I tell my kids I love them, I'm actually telling them that in anger, and I'm not actually loving them? He said, well, perhaps. My friend went away, and he processed that, and as he began to think about it, he began to realize this, that each time he told his kids that he loved them, he was justifying himself. He was justifying his anger in what he felt he had not received. Right? And he's trying to bind up his own wounds. He's saying, I don't need God's love. Right? I love better than God loves, and I'm going to demonstrate it. And he's basically, you know, sticking his finger in God's eye each time that he said, I love, he loved his kids. Right? So here's a guy who's, if you ask him, do you love God? Right? Do you believe in his promises? He would have unequivocally said yes. But then if you press in and say, do you love God so much that God meets you in this place of hurt and loss and you run to him and believe that his love will swallow up the lack of love that you've experienced so that you actually have some authentic love to give to your kids, he would begin to realize that, no, I don't actually believe in God's promises or his country in that fashion because what I am trying to do is, is handle my own hurt and justify my own anger and build up, make everything okay because of my self-righteousness. Our hearts are deceitfully crafty, and even though we can say that we believe in God's promises, so often our, our action, our language, reveals that we do not, that we seek our own country. Abraham, an example that we've used, when he seeks to have a child with Hagar, to interrupt, to anticipate God's promises, to make God's promises come true the way he wants them to come true, He doesn't believe in God's promises. He doesn't seek that country. And when my friend says, I love you to his kids, he doesn't believe, he doesn't seek that country. We seek to make a country in which we would like to dwell. What we have to remember is that in this country or any other country that we might manufacture, we are not at home. Our citizenship is not here. And we are called to be strangers and exiles. Strangers and exiles, for which we have a lot to learn from refugees trying to cross the Mediterranean. Do you spend more time thinking of yourself as a happy citizen? So blessed and grateful to be born in America, or do you spend more time thinking of yourself as a misplaced foreigner, as someone who is not at home? Now, don't hear me wrong. I am deeply grateful to be an American. I celebrate with the rest of the country tomorrow those who have risked their lives on behalf of our country to protect its freedom and to promote democracy in the world. 
But in the midst of our being grateful, we had better be careful that that gratefulness does not become such that we begin to think of this as our home. That we get duped into the affluence and the comfort that exists all around us that makes us think that this is the place to be. And we start to assign ourselves relationships and roles in the midst of this place rather than oriented by the country that we seek. One of my favorite movies is uh, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. It almost always makes the top 10 or 20 of the 20th century uh, of best movies made. It's a little slow and can't be for our taste nowadays, but if you haven't seen it, you should. It tells uh, the real, it's historical fiction, but it presents the situation that existed in World War II where the Japanese occupied Thailand and uh, a number of British soldiers were captured and put into prison camps. And then they were used to build a railway that was, was important to the Japanese military empire connecting Bangkok to Rangoon. The railway in real life is littered with well over 100,000, probably closer to 200,000 bodies of the forced labor and prisoners of war who were forced to build the railway while, while held captive during World War II. So the movie begins with a new load of British soldiers who have been taken into this concentration camp being delivered, and they're led by the highest-ranking officer, who's Colonel Nicholson. And his uh, corresponding figure on the other side is Colonel Saito, who is in charge of the labor camp, or the concentration camp, and he's also in charge of making sure that a bridge gets built over the river right next to the concentration camp for the railway by a certain date. And so he begins by informing that all of the British would be starting forced labor on the bridge. And Nicholson says, well, the enlisted men you can have. That's your right by virtue of war. But he says the Geneva Conventions prohibit you from using officers as forced labor. And so Saito proceeds to strike him across the face with a copy of the Geneva Conventions and uh, begins to torture for several days all of the officers who under Nicholson are participating. So after several days of torture, they're taken to see the bridge site. And Nicholson, right, in part by virtue of the torture that he's experienced, has this 180-degree turn. All of a sudden, the oddest thing happens because he decides that the best thing for his men is to have a project. It will keep up morale. And he's actually offended by the poor engineering of the Japanese. And so he decides that he and his men will indeed work on the bridge and they will bring all of the best of British engineering and British work ethic to bear on this bridge and they will do it right. And so they say to the Japanese, you're building in the wrong spot. The soil here is inadequate to support the weight of the bridge. They move the site and they begin to build and they do just that. And eventually the Japanese and the British are laboring together to make sure the bridge is completed uh, by the, the deadline so that the train can pass over with all the military officials and dignitaries. And it's at the end of the movie, and alongside all this time, there's been a, a covert operation by British forces to destroy the bridge. So you have a British officer in a prisoner of war camp leading the building of the bridge, and you have British covert team outside of the prison camp planning to destroy the bridge. And so they lay underwater explosives, but overnight, at the end of the movie, the water's gone down enough so that you can see the wires to the explosives. And Nicholson notices, and he and Saito are rushing to try to interrupt this attack on this incredibly beautiful bridge that they built. 
So they engage the covert team. The Japanese realize there's a British covert team. They start firing. And it's only when Nicholson sees his fellow, his British brothers dying, right, the covert team under the fire of the Japanese, that he says, even as he's mortally wounded, he says, what have I done? And he falls dead on the detonator, which blows up the bridge, and the train crashes into the ravine. It's a great movie, but it's also a great picture of our situation, at least in this sense. You, to a degree, are a prisoner of war. You're born into a world that is corrupted by sin, in which evil exists, in which it exerts power and influence, and things don't work the way that they're supposed to, and it's hard. I don't need to tell you that this world is a dangerous and precarious place. Last night, in all of the rain, there was a terrible wreck on I-30 at Horizon. An 18-wheeler crossed the median and went into oncoming traffic. And two people were killed. We'll never go home. And nobody, I'm sure, who was involved in that accident saw that coming. Right? This world is a precarious and unpredictable and dangerous place. Right? And so we decide on how to function. And sometimes, in the midst of all that danger and precariousness, we decide on different projects that we think will give us meaning and identity and purpose. Just like Nicholson says, we need meaning and identity and purpose here. Let's build this bridge. But if we're not careful, our projects do nothing more than participate with the enemy. And they do nothing more than uh, steal our humanity. Because they aren't projects that are good for us in any sense of the word. What we have to do is remind ourselves that we're strangers and exiles and that all of our actions and priorities need to be oriented to the country that is to come. If Nicholson remembered or believed that uh, you know, Britain is, is the place that is, is, is protecting and advocating democracy, they are fighting back a totalitarian regime, I am going to orient myself toward their agenda, then he never would have participated in creating this bridge that would facilitate the enemy's ends. And so... We have to do similar things as well. What do we learn from Abraham and his kin? How do you, how do you be a good stranger? How do you be in exile? It's really an uncomfortable thing. But do you actually feel and live in that discomfort or do you try to remedy it? Yeah. Let me offer you three very brief notions as we close. Three things that we learned from Abraham and his kin. Number one, if we are going to be faithful strangers and exiles and look toward a better country, we had better remind ourselves of that fact. And reminding ourselves is an ongoing daily process. One of the things I love about reading the story of the patriarchs, right, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is that they continually make monuments that testify to God's blessing and then are a reminder for generations to come of what God has done. How do you remind yourself of the ways in which God is working in your life? Certainly by reading His story, but perhaps it would be helpful to set up a monument. Right? Perhaps you won't make a big pile of stones in your backyard, but perhaps you set up something in your house. And every time you look upon it, you remember what it means to be a stranger in exile. In the office, we have a hammer from the women who work in the rock quarry in India. Right? It's one of the actual hammers they used to strike the rock day in and day out and break it up. And that's their life. And every time I see that hammer, I am reminded that I am a stranger and an exile. 
Number two, don't turn back. Right? Yes, you will mess up. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have plenty of stories about messing up. But what they don't do is they don't turn back. And in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15, this is why they're held out to us, that they could have returned to their homeland. They could have said, I've had enough of being a stranger in exile. I've had enough about moving around in tents, God. I've had enough of waiting on promises that I don't realize to the degree that I would like them to be realized. I'm going back to Ur. I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. They never turn back, but they keep moving faithfully in the same direction. Number three, do not get comfortable. Right? What's the whole purpose of being nomadic? Right? Or what better way to be reminded that you are a sojourner and an exile than to never put down roots, but to always be on the move, to be kept from that level of comfort that might make you forget that there's a better country to come. Now, I'm not suggesting that you live in a tent or that you move every year. I don't think those are good or realistic propositions. But I am suggesting to you that we get far too comfortable. We get so comfortable that it's very hard to remember that we are a stranger and an exile in this land. Eli Ramirez was a, um, is a, a refugee from Guatemala who uh, paid a smuggler to get him to the Rio Grande and then spent three days in the desert drinking his own urine to sneak into the United States and eventually made his way to Chicago where he knew other uh, Guatemalan refugees. He had family. And within 24 hours of arriving in uh, Chicago, he gets a job at Charlie Trotter's where he has Ken working. Charlie Trotter's is one of the most elite restaurants in Chicago. You drop, I don't know, probably a couple hundred dollars, and you get whatever they're serving that night. There's no menu, right? Talking about hundreds, if not thousand-dollar bottles of wine. He, rem- he chuckled when he remembered breaking one of the wine glasses and being told that they were each over $100. But he begins to talk about coming into the country and working at Charlie Trotter's, and he begins to talk about the food that was thrown away. And he begins in the interview, he begins weeping. And he says, it's not, I'm not angry and I'm not trying to judge you. He says, I just know how much difference this food would make in my country. And he can barely get the words out for what he's seen, uh, the waste. And when he thinks about the needs and the hunger in his own country. We live in a comfortable place. And to the degree that we embrace that comfort is the degree to which we fail to remember to be strangers and aliens. What does God hold out for those who remember to be strangers and aliens? That he will not be ashamed. That's a great line. It's a crazy line for a God. You won't read it anywhere else. Right? Because really when we say when someone isn't ashamed, right? You're at the ballpark and some high schooler hits four home runs. And you hear someone in the crowd point to an older gentleman and say, He's not ashamed to be his dad tonight. Right? What does that mean? It means he's pretty darn proud to be the dad of that individual that night for what he's done. And it's an old idiom. It means the same thing as it did back then. Right? God's not only not ashamed, he's incredibly proud of those who are willing to be to identify as strangers and aliens in the midst of a foreign country. Well, the inverse of that then is true as well. 
that he's not too keen on those who don't. That his favor isn't necessarily bestowed upon in the same way. He's not as excited as those who have taken his grace for granted. And while pretending and giving lip service to the promises of God, have actually made their own promises and sought their own country. I said at the beginning that Hebrews 11 is hard. And it's hard because um, everything we've said this morning is very important. But you must take this with you as well as you think about it and hopefully dwell on Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 this week. And that is this, that, that the city that is to come, the country to which we're headed, is better and wonderful, not simply because it's a really cool place, and not simply because we envision it of having all pleasure and comfort, right? When we think of heaven, we often think of America on steroids. It's the better place because it's where Jesus is. It's the better place because he's already triumphed and he's waiting to greet you and to receive you into his arms and to wash away every tear and every remnant of sin and evil. And it's that which makes the country that is to come worth pursuing. Not the amenities that comes with it, but Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have prepared a city that is to come, a better country. We pray that you would forgive us for loving this place so deeply. We are, uh, we are like kids in an amusement park. And for our distraction, we ask that you would be sympathetic and forgiving, and we pray that you would increasingly wake us up. Wake us up that we might embrace being strangers and aliens and embrace pursuing the better country. And yes, acknowledging that all the promises that we that are given to us may not be realized in our lifetime. But by faith, knowing that you have prepared the city, and by faith, believing that your promises are the best, and your future is the best, and your country is the best. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, this would order our lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.